With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Part of the Over the Monster Network. Swinging a high deep drive in the right field. That one's called to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Presented by SB Nation. It hasn't happened at Fenway Park for 95 years. The Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. Here comes a 1-2 pitch. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. High deep right. He crushed it. It's a grand slam. Wow. I'm telling you, it's time to party. Got it. 300 strikeouts in 2017 for Chris Sale. An absolute strikeout machine. 13 tonight against the Baltimore Orioles. They're all loaded. High fly ball, deep in the left center field. Get out Way back it carries. And that ball is gone! The Red Sox walk it off in style. That's how it's done. The X-Man strikes. Fly ball to deep left center field. Devers has hit it out! The rookie takes Chapman the other way to tie the game. Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined by my co-host, Keaton DeRocher, also of Over the Monster and of the Dynasty Guru. Um, I'm also over there too. I guess I never say that, but I am. Um, and we are here to talk to you about the Red Sox. And on today's show, we have a quite a full rundown, actually. We're going to be talking about the signing of Kevin Ploiecki. We're going to be talking about the latest rumors about Mookie Betts and David Price. And then Keaton and I have a special prepared for you. We both created our all-decade team from 2010 to 2019. And we're going to go through our lists. We went through a bunch of positions, and we'll give you the rundown on that. But that was a lot of fun. A good idea by Keaton. And uh, then lastly, we will get to some listener questions. So before we dive right in, Keaton, uh, it is your birthday today as we record this. Keaton just turned 30, so I hope you will all wish him a happy birthday at his Twitter handle, the uh, Spoken Keats, and, um, you know, Give him some follows, too, if you're not already following him. Thanks, friend. Yeah, man. Um, so how was your uh, your birthday brunch? It was great. Went and got some crepes. Had a wonderful time with my friends. 
It was excellent. It was a good day. That's a good birthday right there. Crepes are, are pretty good. They are. Certainly a lot better and more exciting than Kevin Ploiecki. Boom! That's what we call in the business <laughs> a transition. And uh, anyhow, the Red Sox finally made a move. They uh, signed Kevin Ploiecki to continue their string of unimpressive, uninspiring offseason moves. And Kevin, if you're listening, this is no no knock on you. You're a fine back backup uh, catcher and a good defensive one. Um, and maybe better with the stick than Leon, because, like, who isn't? But... Um, you know, it still just continues that trend of like, oh, okay, that's that's what they're doing. Um, and in, in regard to this, they also designated Sam Travis, and it seems like the, the Sam Travis era is finally over here in Boston. So, Keaton, I want to get your thoughts on these two players. First, what was your reaction when they added Poecki? And what do you make of the Travis move? Well, the Pilecki thing seems like if you can't beat him, join him thing. He was kind of tearing up the Red Sox there for a bit. <clears throat> so that's nice. Um, got a backup catcher, which was a bit of a hole. Uh, didn't really have anyone to fill that with Leon gone. But um, I don't really have many thoughts on that. Uh, was a highly-ish regarded prospect at one point. Just never really put it together. Never could stay healthy. So had pedigree, but uh, not so much anymore. Uh, the Sam Travis thing, um, I was kind of surprised at that, but the more I thought it through, um, the more I think you actually kind of predicted this a couple weeks ago when <clears throat> we were talking about the Rule 5, uh, and I suggested that um, there was a chance that the, the Red Sox, or I was kind of surprised that the Red Sox didn't protect Josh Ockamy, and there was a chance that he could get scooped up, and you didn't think there was really a place for a platoon first baseman. And that's essentially what Sam Travis is. He got a little bit of run in the outfield, but um, I think this move kind of shows that the Red Sox didn't really think that that was a role for him, and it was really him as a platoon first baseman, which you kind of pointed out there really wasn't a, spot on the roster for that kind of role and there you go dfa yeah yeah i think i think you're you're spot on with those two things and yeah um i think we're kind of getting our first preference of uh or our, our first taste i should say of what heim bloom's preferences are around this roster because clearly as somebody who has operated within this division he has opinions on you know, <clears throat> players who are on the 25 man or or 40-man rosters of the teams that he's directly competing against. So I'm sure he had his own thoughts and analysis of Sam Travis long before he came in here, and apparently he didn't think he was very valuable. It's hard to argue with him. I mean, Sam Travis had some moments there, but really he was a prospect that failed to put it together, and, you know, unfortunately just not a not a great development story by the Red Sox and it's unfortunate and they tried a lot of things they tried multiple positions for him he tried changing his swing last year to go more with a launch angle approach and that really didn't work for him and he went back to his regular swing and was tearing it up for a little bit in AAA but overall it's just Sam Travis ran his course here so hopefully he can get his career back on track and probably it'll be elsewhere though if he does do that yeah um, all right, so, yeah, DFA'd him. Um, Kevin Pulecki, though, 
I do think he is interesting only because of what it means for the roster, not really because of the player. He's basically the same guy as Sandy Leon. He doesn't have much of a bat, maybe slightly higher ceiling than Leon, like I said. Um, but the big reason here that he's on the team and Leon is not is because he costs less than Leon. He's going to make about $900,000 this year. So they're going to save, you know, over a couple million bucks uh, from having Leon on this roster. And saving money around the fringes is probably something we're going to see Bloom do a whole lot more than uh, Dombrowski, who definitely spent money like, you know, he had just won it at the craps <clears throat> table. I thought you were going to say like it was his job. To which I was going to point out, it was. It's <laughs> a <So>, good pivot. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I really uh, I moved away from that one. Um, yeah, um, but that's about all the thoughts that I think we have on that. So we will move on. Um, but let's get to the the big rumors here: Mookie Betts and David Price. Uh, a, a JP Morosi rumor popped up. Um, just a few days ago, yeah, it's January 2nd is when the report was made, but essentially Morosi said that they could be a fit for both of these players, and we've talked um, and even role-played on this show uh, what a trade between the Red Sox and Dodgers might actually look like, um, but Morosi says that one of the reasons why this might make sense is for all the reasons we talked about, the bets would potentially put the Dodgers over the top but also the fact that they've lost some starting pitching. David Price could be a good veteran presence there. And then also the Red Sox are not looking for their prize, their sacred cow, Gavin Lux, in a trade package backwards. It seems like the Red Sox would be fine with one of the young arms of Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin or, or two of the guys that they mentioned. And I actually mentioned Tony in one of my uh, trade proposals as well. As a name that I thought had made sense, I, I still think they probably won't get May in that package, but it'd be great if they did. Um, does this make sense to you? Um, because there's been a lot of stuff out there, and very little of it has actually been, I don't know, I, don't, I hesitate to say actionable, but like, I don't know how credible it's all been. Obviously, Morosi's a good reporter, but it, it just seems like there's not a lot to this. Yeah. I agree, but if we're going to play the game, I really think there's only two destinations that really work. Um, the Dodgers is one of them, and the Dodgers, I think, is the only destination that works for both Price and Betts. And I think the Braves is really the only one that works for just Betts. Um, so I'm not surprised to hear these rumors. And I, if, I would not be surprised if the Red Sox really aren't pushing for Lux. Uh, if I'm the Dodgers, I'm 100% going for it. And whatever it's going to take, like, Sands Lux to get it done, I would do it. If you're the Dodgers, why would you not? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, their rotation next year, if they got Price, would be Kershaw, <laughs> Bueller, Maeda, Julio Urias, or Stripling, and then David Price. Um, even without Dustin May or Tony Consolin, that's still a really, really strong rotation. And... You know, if you're counting on that trio of Maeda or Urias or Stripling, like you don't want those to be your five guys there. You want somebody else, and I think David Price fits that role really well. And I mean, how scary would it be to all the other teams if you have a hundred win team? Um, you know, that adds Mookie Betts to the outfield, replacing you know maybe Pollock or Verdugo. 
have them in the in the outfield with Cody Bellinger or you know replaces Jock Peterson or whoever. I mean the 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 concept is scary. Would you be happy with and would the Dodgers do May Verdugo and Ruiz? I don't think they would do May Verdugo and Ruiz for price and bets. I think it would be more <clears throat> likely that they would do May and Ruiz or Verdugo, Ruiz, and Tony Gonsolin. I just I think that you're going to get one of or the other of Verdugo and May with how they value those guys. And I would rather have May, personally. Young, controllable pitching, upside of a two. I think that that would be a really good piece for the Red Sox. Man, I like Verdugo a lot. I think I would actually be happy with either. So, if given the choice, who would you have? Yeah, I think I would probably lean May. But I do like Verdugo a lot. I'm on that Verdugo hype train. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I think with the Red Sox organization... It's interesting to me to get pitching from the outside. The Red Sox have been really bad as an organization of developing starting pitching over the last 10-plus years, and we haven't really seen too many success cases there. We've seen Buckholtz and Lester, but the Dodgers, conversely, are maybe the best team other than, I don't know, you could argue the Braves. Tampa. But getting a starting pitcher that's you know coming from them, that's amazing. And the Red Sox are really good at developing position players so kind of a nice way to to get that done yeah Tampa's been pretty good with developing pitching as well yes they definitely have it's funny how you can spot these trends in organizations and you know no matter how hard they try they can't seem to buck these trends (laughs) (laughs) it's not like the Red Sox aren't trying to develop starting pitching right yeah Dodgers, man. They just cracked the code. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how likely this is. Uh, Alex Spear had a report that came out right after it that said that there's no real intense conversation between the two plugs, uh, clubs. Um, the reason why there is you know, some speculation here, I think, a little bit more than there might be otherwise, is because Andrew Friedman and, and Bloom work together. Um, so there's obviously a relationship there. I think they value players similarly, which may, might make – Hammering out a trade easier than with general managers or presidents of baseball ops that, you know, don't share the same set of values when it comes to valuing players. Yeah, and it it is kind of interesting to see. I mean, I wish these moves would start happening faster. It seems like there's one small move every, like, couple weeks. And then we're kind of thinking... Okay, I think we kind of see where things are going now, and then there's another move that happens, and we're still kind of mulling it over. I just kind of, I mean, I know we're still not all that far into the off season, even though we have turned the calendar to a new year. Just wish the stuff would just start happening. You and me both, man. It's uh, hasn't been <clears throat> an exciting one for the Red Sox. No. Um, let's get on to something that is exciting, though. And that yeah. is our all-decade team, which yeah. I thought was just a great idea by you. So we went ahead and did go. it. It is uh, we're going to be 
talking about all the different positions on the diamond. So we each named a catcher, first baseman, all 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 the positions. Um, we named five starting pitchers. We also named a closer, four relievers, and then we have an honorable mention for outfield, infield, starting pitcher, and relief pitcher. So I figure what we'll do here is we'll just sort of uh, go back and forth here, and uh, we'll start with catcher, and uh, I'll let you kick us off. Okay. I picked for my all-decade catcher, Jared Saltanamakia. All right. And why? Um... He, it was less games than Vasquez. Um, Vasquez, I guess, kind of surprisingly had more or had the most games at catcher of uh, any Red Sox catcher for the decade. But Salta Machia's performance was just that much better. Uh, more homers, more runs, more RBIs. Uh, surprisingly, Vasquez was up in the double digits for steals. But <clears throat> they were pretty close in war. It was like an eighty-game difference at Saltamakia. Just his counting stats, and his—he was the only one that was over a hundred for a WRC plus. So I just think that his performance and his role in that 2013 team gave him the the nod to be the All-Decade catcher. Yeah, he was a pretty damn good offensive catcher that year in 2013. Um, I picked Jared Saltamakia as well as my catcher. Over Vasky, and, and it is worth noting that Vasquez last year had the best season by war of of those two players over their years with the Red Sox. Um, at least according to fan graphs, he was worth 3.5 war. But Salty was just consistent <laughs> in his three years here. Uh, he had a 2.7, 2.9, 3.1. Um, you know, had some thump, um, and he was really good behind the plate. So. That's kind of what swayed it for me was Salty came here, and I think he was a bit more of a finished product. Uh, he just kind of fit seamlessly in, and his WRC pluses were 95, 96, and 116 in those years. So, you know, it was kind of nice. He was he was dangerous. He didn't really do a whole lot in the playoffs in 2013, but overall, just a, a fun guy. He did strike out a ton, though. <laughs> Remember he did. 30% <laughs> whiff rate, which I guess now in the game is pretty normal, but. Dude, but he, he, he did have cut. the game-winning hit in uh, Game 5. Or not, yeah, Game 5? Yes. Uh, against Detroit. Yeah, he did. <coughs> All right, moving on to first base. Um, I went a little off the rails with my first base selection here. Uh, I went with a guy who is a fan favorite, and that is Mike Napoli. Um Mike Napoli played in 356 games with the club. Um, the only player who's played in more at first base over that time is uh, actually Mitch Moreland. Um, but, you know, Napoli had some thump. Um, he was part of that magical 2013 run. Um, that season he had 92 RBIs. And as Keaton pointed out coming into the show, um, that year he he got LASIK and found out he had sleep apnea um, so he cured both issues on his way to a 128 WRC plus and uh, I just loved everything about his performance that season and during his time with the Red Sox I thought he was a ton of fun his drunken escapades after that World Series will forever remain legend around here 
Yeah, I guess I don't really fault you for that. It's not a bad one. I went with Adrian Gonzalez um, because he was very good, even though he was kind of annoying as a person in like post game interviews and things on the field. Very good as a hitter and a fielder. So I went with Adrian Gonzalez. You know, it shocks me that Adrian Gonzalez was only here for like a season in change. Um, it just seemed like with the amount of talk about Adrian Gonzalez that he would have been here for much longer. Yeah, they kind of bailed on that contract pretty quick. Yeah, real fast. And especially with how much it took them to actually pry him away from the the Padres. I mean, we f- we forget sometimes i think when we talk about him because we so often just talk about the the big trade that was made surrounding him but that was arguably his best season of his career was his season here with the red sox 27 home runs 117 rbis he batted 338 410 548 he was a stud here he was just an annoying stud (laughs) yeah pretty much which is absolutely why i could not bring myself to vote for him yeah I also kind of understand that, too. Uh, next one. Who'd you have for second base? Uh, I had Dustin Pedroia. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the all-time a snow-brainer of this list. He played over a 1,000 games the position and accumulated 32.8 war over that decade. Uh, yeah, yeah, this was Dustin's decade. Number two in war at second base in the decade is Brock Holt. In- <laughs> It's it's something. I mean, he did everything. He, he had even more value, according to Fangraphs, defensively uh, than he did offensively. And his line was 296, 363, 432 over that time with 98 home runs and 91 stolen bases. Man, I miss Dustin Pedroia. Yeah. Yeah, so Come I picked back, Dustin, buddy. too, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the only one who might actually pick uh, who, who, would would anybody go rogue and pick uh, pick Holt here? Do you think of anybody we know? Are you, are you trying to say Matt? He does love him some Holt. I don't even think he could bring himself <laughs> to do it though. No, no. This this is this is the decade of Dustin. All right, third base. Um, this is one that I had a lot of fun with trying to debate, and I ultimately went with the youngin. Rafael Devers. Um, I went with him over Euclid and and Beltre and a few of the other guys because Euclid um, was playing a lot of first base towards the that that part of the decade. He wasn't really a third baseman anymore. I mean, he was, but he wasn't like peak Euclid third baseman. And then what Devers gave us last year was just unbelievable for a twenty-two year year old season uh, 32 home runs 129 runs 115 rbis and a 132 wrc plus batting over 300 uh i loved everything about this kid's development it shocked the hell out of me that he was able to do it all in one season and i'm just so excited about his career going forward so i went with Euclid, even though i know he was kind of at first i just couldn't leave Euclid off my list because he was still pretty darn good for uh, you know, the amount that he played. And kind of for the same reason that um, you noted that you thought about Beltre, but it was only one season, so you couldn't do it. Um, I, I couldn't 
bring myself to put Devers over Euclid for Devers one really good season. Uh, it was a very difficult choice between Euclid and Gonzalez for first, and then also a very difficult choice between <laughs> Euclid and Devers for third, and I had to get Euclid on here somewhere. So to give away one of my uh, future slots, my uh, infield uh, honorable mention is Devers, because I had to get Euclid in here. So I got him at third. That's totally fair. And and Uke did play <clears throat> 112 games at third base in 2011, um, kind of right before his the end of his time with the Red Sox. Um, and he was still really good, like you said. So, man, Uke was just such a productive player. He's, he's someone we, we think about when we remember those teams. But, like, really, he had some years where he was – pushing it in war 6.2 war 5.9 it's some amazing seasons Yuke was a dude he did yeah i think you get on base with the best of them he sure could even if it meant getting hit all right who'd you have over at uh short bogarts of course this one was almost as much of a laugher as uh a second base i had bogey too i mean there's there was no other options right yeah, I mean, <laughs> looking at like who's second in WAR on these lists at the some of these positions is kind of laughable, and like, and shortstop is one of them. Number two is Marco Scudero. <laughs> Scudero, man, he I had some good Scudero memories. He was pretty solid here. I mean, I didn't really love Stephen Drew. Um, looking down at some of these names, Mike Aviles was fun for a bit. Um, I mean, I guess I should give Drew some credit, but I just wasn't a big Drew guy. Um, but Xander Bogarts, I think this is probably <clears throat> this is top three for us in terms of ones that are most dominant, right? This was about as much a no-brainer as any of the positions. Yes. Well, we'll we'll get to him, but yeah, it's pretty damn close. He accumulated twenty-four point six WAR over this time period, played in nine hundred and fourteen games here, so. Xander is and will continue to be the man. Left field. Uh, in left, I went with Andrew Benintendi. But let me just say, this was not easy for me. I was super close to picking Daniel Nava or Johnny Gomes here um, because both guys meant so much to the baseball club, Johnny Gomes to the culture of that 2013 team, um, both of them as an effective platoon. Um, also Nava's story and the fact that he's stuck around here for over 400 games. Um, there's just a lot to like about both of those guys, but ultimately Andrew Benintendi being the guy who kind of grabbed that position, um, in left field is so legendary here at, at Fenway park and the catch that he made in the world series. And the fact that there's untapped potential there still is why I ultimately chose Benintendi. But let me say it was, it was a tenuous choice for me. This one was easy. And just for the impact that he's had on the entire organization at every level, I picked Rizny Castillo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I went with Ben Intendi as well. I was actually kind of surprised to see the options in left field. I I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be. But I, I guess I was kind of surprised to see that Ben Intendi already had nine war and was kind of pretty distantly out there for left fielders. We just maybe just haven't had a really good run of left fielders. 
Yeah, it's been kind of interesting. So the Red Sox as a organization have the most uh, amazing run of left fielders of any organization in sports, and it might be the single most dominant position of any team uh, in sports. I mean, they went straight from Ted Williams to um, Yastrzemski, and then to Jim Rice, and then to like Manny, and there was someone else in there. There was Greenwell in there. I mean, I have it written down somewhere, but like basically there's, there was an unbroken string of excellence in left field that spanned like 70 years in Boston until the 2010s, and then things got rough for a little bit after Manny left. And then Andrew Benintendi came to like kind of calm everything down in left field. But it really is unbelievable. Bill Hall. Man, I had forgotten about him. Bill Hall was a guy. There yeah. are some names here. Bill Hall, Chris Young, Darnell McDonald. That was a great name. <laughs> Love Darnell. We even had 52 games of Grady Sizemore. Oh, I forgot about that, too. Mike Carp. Yeah, it's left field Yikes. was fun in the 2010s. Yeah. <clears throat> um, all right. Wow. So who'd you have for center? So for center, I went with Jacoby Ellsbury. Um, I know the defense was not as good as, well, I mean, his arm in particular, not nearly as good as Jackie Bradley Jr., but he could make some pretty spectacular catches. Offense was a lot better, um, so I went I went with him. I couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, Jacoby Ellsbury's one excellent season in 2011 was amazing, uh, but Jackie Bradley Jr., 118 games, that's who I went with, um, 118 games versus 384 over the decade. 818. 818, yes. 818. Um, Just so many games played. Very durable guy. And the defensive highlight reel. That's just it. I mean, that's one of the things I enjoy most about baseball is defensive highlights. And, man, Jackie has given us no no shortage of those. And um, the other thing is, like, if you take out 2013, which obviously you can't do, he, Ellsbury just wasn't that special offensively. And yeah, even with that season in there, Ellsbury finished with a 118 WRC plus versus JBJ with a 91. Um, obviously, JBJ is a very limited player offensively. But Ellsbury had some limitations too. He did. I just think he was a little bit more rounded. And even in half the games... Uh, eclipsed JBJ's war by a full run. Yeah, 9.5 of that was in one season. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Still got to count it, though. Oh, yeah. Dude, I mean, 2011 was crazy. Plus, Jacoby gave us free tacos. Jackie Bradley Jr. did not. Tacoby Bellsbury, yes. Man, just looking at that 2011 season, though. 32 home runs, 39 stolen bases, 321, 376, 552 with a 150 WRC+. Actually, I have to take that back because the tacos did not come this decade, so I can't count that. 
Oh, that was 2013 tacos, wasn't it? That was 2007. Oh, those were 2007 tacos. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I can't count those, even though he did give them to us. Well, this is our this is our decade team. Yeah, those, no, you're right. Can't count those tacos. I'm looking at that two stolen bases, baby, in this in the playoffs. Wow, he batted 360 in those 2007 playoffs as well. That boy was good for a bit. He was real good. He was. Well, that's a good selection. I like that one. Um, right field. I really went out on a limb here, and <laughs> I. Uh, Decided to choose Marcus Lynn Betts um, as my right fielder. I mean, it's just it's stupid. He's the best right fielder in the history of the Red Sox organization. Um, one of the things that I've done on my own here is like gone through and looked historically at all the positions uh, over the course of the entire franchise history of the Red Sox. And previous to Mookie Betts, previous to him, it was Dwight Evans. And, um, you know, post Post Dwight Evans, I, I I didn't really think that anybody would have a chance to catch him for a long time, um, but then Mookie comes along and does it all in like five years. Essentially, he's <laughs> basically better than everybody, um, and he's won an MVP. I mean, he's the he's the goat for the Red Sox in terms of right field of all time already. Yep. Wholeheartedly agree. He was also my choice. 37.2 F4 already in just 794 games. I really hope he stays. Me too. All right. Uh, just as much of a no-brainer here. Who'd you have at DH? David Ortiz. <laughs> I never heard of him. Tell me about his exploits. <laughs> well, um, he's hit a, a homer or two. Just a, just a couple. Important ones? Yeah, yeah. Sent uh, Torrey Hunter over a wall with a, a grand slam to tie a, a playoff game. Do you have a favorite uh, David Ortiz moment? <clears throat> I mean, it's got to be the 4 back-to-back walk-offs. Which one's your favorite? Um, oh, man. Because one's a ding-dong and one's a poke. Like, one's just a little little single. Yeah, I mean, they're both big, though. <laughs> That's, I mean... Yeah, I guess I'll take the, the homer, because chicks dig long balls. Mine is, mine is the little poke. Mine is the fact that he did it again. I just couldn't... I couldn't get over that, and I still can't get over that to this day. The hit off Ramiro Mendoza. <laughs> the fact that, like... He had just done it in game four, and then he Less than it again. 24 hours earlier. <laughs> yeah. Like, at that point, I was just like, this guy's not not normal. He's not like the rest of us. He is, he is a god. And just solidified it for me. Um, but yeah, man, Ortiz is just, he's the, he's the best. I'm happy that he is fully healthy now and that... That bullet didn't take him out because that would have been the worst. I will say that one of the hardest things to do is, in a big moment, call like make the the play by play call of one of those moments. And the the grand slam against Detroit, sending Torrey Hunter over the wall, Dave O'Brien's David Ortiz, David Ortiz, David Ortiz is one of my favorite all time calls of any Red Sox play ever. Yeah, that was a really good call. Yeah. It was. 
Yeah. I agree with you. That moment was amazing. And, and the, the cop, Steve Horgan, is like such a legend now. And yeah. It's and the whole moment was just the best. And Tori Hunter and, ah, man. And Tori and David Ortiz have such a good relationship, anyways. There's just so much fun stuff around that whole story. Yeah. So, uh, they managed against each other, I think, in Futures game like two years ago, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think they had a bunch, didn't they? Wasn't um, Guerrero part of that too? I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, I, yeah, because I think Ortiz had the world guys and Tori had the uh, the USA guys. But that's an aside here. We'll we'll get back to the the, <clears throat> the lists. Um, for my starting pitcher number one, my SP one for this list, I ended up going with Johnny Lester um, because. From 2010 to 2014, he was an ace for this team. And during that 2013 playoff run, which I've referenced here a few times because so many magical things happened there, he had a 1.56 ERA over 34.2 innings pitched. Um, That was Bumgarner-esque. That was one of the greatest pitching performances, sustained pitching performances in a single playoffs of all time. And that's why I give him the nod. Yeah, um, so I actually I didn't list them that way, um, but I, I guess I should have because I, I would have Lester as my number one as well. Uh, so I just I just listed five in no particular order. <laughs> so um, if we were gonna go like tit for tat there, then yeah, I would also have Lester for number one. Who would you have number two? Chris Sale. I also had Chris Sale number two. Why'd you pick him two? Because, I mean, it's like appointment viewing when Chris Sale is pitching. Just the, it's electric stuff. It's just too much fun to watch. So many strikeouts. uh, And his attitude on the mound is just, it's awesome. And one of the greatest moments of... Red Sox history, which there are plenty of, is him coming in to close out the World Series and walking into the bullpen and everybody just like, yeah, sales coming in, it's over. (laughs) And buckling Machado. Yeah. It was the perfect person to have up at the plate, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, what he did in 2017 coming in here, he was unbelievable. And then in... I don't know, over 40 less innings or whatever in 2018. He was even better um, on on a, on a rate stat basis uh, for that season. So I'm just really looking forward to him getting his stuff back and his health back this year. And if we can see ace Chris Sale, I mean, this season is going to be a hell of a lot more fun because last year, I mean, seeing him struggle for 147 innings was was not fun. Nope. It's it pretty maddening. painful. All right, my SP3, I went with Rick Porcello. Uh, Rick Porcello is a known dude of mine. Um, Love Rick Porcello. Wish him the best with the Mets. But in the 2010s, only Clay Buckholtz threw more innings than Rick Porcello. Uh, He was worth more than Buckholtz was by F-War. And in 2016, um, he had that Cy Young year, which was just incredible. Um and I just really believe in the the stability that you know those innings add to the rotation and the trickle down effect it has on the bullpen. 
I think it, it, it really plays into the club's mind when they know that a guy is taking the ball every five days and that he's going to go out there and, and do his work. And, you know, you've pointed out many times his work has been inconsistent at times, but he always showed up in big situations and he always took the damn ball. So I love Rick Porcello for that. I also have a inconsistent guy as uh, my SP3. I went with Clay Buckholtz, who was as inconsistent as inconsistent could be. But got no hitter in there. Um, I don't think you can look back on the Red Sox in the 2010s and not have that grimy-ass beard come to mind and it was disgusting <laughs> yeah it was it's almost as nasty as trot nixon's helmet Ugh. might have been worse but uh i mean he was a staple of the pitching rotation for uh, a long time and for as wildly inconsistent as he was numbers weren't all that bad i mean didn't really have the strikeouts but um didn't walk a ton of guys era uh over almost a thousand innings 3.7 not terrible. Um, and he was just kind of always there for a really long time. And he had that one season where uh, the All-Star break, sub-two ERA, was on his way to a Cy Young and setting a whole bunch of records and putting up just an absolute wild season until uh, he got hurt at the All-Star break and then never pitched again. <laughs> and so that, But that was literally Clay Buckholz in a nutshell. So, I mean, that was basically what you would get out of him. So that's as wildly inconsistent and frustrating as he was uh, when he was on. He was on, and I so totally agree. I uh, I had him four, so I'm right there with you, man. Um, Clay Buckholz is unique. Uh, looking at his lines now, he's just not the type of pitcher that you see today anymore. You know he he didn't blow guys away with his strikeout rate, um, but he did keep the ball in the park. In a lot of his good seasons, he always had strong ground ball rates. Um, he had a whole lot of pitches that were pretty damn good. And like you said, that 2010, 2.33 ERA. Um, 2013, 1.74 ERA over the time. that I think that was the year that you were referencing that he yeah. was uh, going for the Cy Young. And then 2015, 113 innings pitched. Again, the inconsistency with the playing time, but 3.26 ERA. Um, the guy was as talented as anybody. Yeah, he was. Um, all right, who'd you have for your fourth starter? My fourth starter is David Price. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Uh, again, another kind of uh, annoying person, but on the field, he's got the stuff. It's a really good pitcher. Um and surprisingly uh, been here long enough to put up almost 600 innings, which is a whole bunch of, whole bunch of innings. Um, and there's just, I mean, there's some other names on the list that you look at and think um, might be better suited, but they just they weren't here long enough, or it was like right at the end of their tenure. Like, uh, I thought about Tim Wakefield, but it was it was just, that wasn't enough there. It's just at the end of his career. So yeah. couldn't do it. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it was just kind of like the Adrian Gonzalez thing. Uh, 
It's kind of like annoying off the field, but when he's on the field, he's really good. So it's kind of hard to ignore it. Yeah, he was my my SP five. Um, <clears throat> I I wrote on my notes for him: big money, big moments, big scandals. Everything about Price was noteworthy. Um, I just remember that first year going to see him for the first time, being just stoked, and he pitched so many innings that year, and then. The I hold all the cards talk after 2018, after, you know, he had been in spats for yelling at Eck and, you know, all this stuff. It's like everything with that guy was just a friggin' debacle um, or just a show or whatever. So, yeah, I agree with you. But overall, I mean, can't really argue with the fact that over the course of his time here, like you said, I mean, he's he's got a 3.84 ERA and he's been worth... 10 wins it's, it's certainly not worth the money we paid for him but it's it's pretty good yeah so i think you just gave away your five your fifth there so my fifth was rick Purcell. nice i'm really happy you gave him the nod for five there was that hard for you to do <laughs> i mean a little bit until i like i Slapped myself in the face and was like, dude, Cy Young. I mean, he's got to be here. <laughs> he has to be here. You yeah. can't tell the story of the 2010s without talking about Rick Porcello. Yeah. Yeah. Love yeah. him or hate him. So, That's kind of how I was with Price. So just to recap, my five was Lester, Sale, uh, Buckholtz, Price, and Porcello. All right, same five, different order. Uh, same top two, Lester and Sale. Then I have Porcello, Buckholtz, and Price. Um, closer. Who did you choose for your closer of the decade? So I went with Kimbrell, and that was not easy. But I essentially chose Kimbrell for the reason of um, he just had way more saves uh, because he was the closer for a longer period of time than Koji, even though Koji's short stint as closer is arguably like the best single like run of a closer in major league history. Uh Kimbrell uh was still an elite closer and did it for longer and racked up like thirty more saves. Or forty more saves. I mean, it's hard to argue against Kimbrell, especially he was his twenty seventeen was like one of the greatest reliever seasons ever. Um, up there with his 2012 and you're right he's had a million saves but gun to my head if I had to pick somebody to close out a game to continue my life on this earth it would be 2013 Koji Uihara the guy had a 1.09 ERA and a .57 whip and never ever got hit hard I mean he was a god that year. He had 101 strikeouts, 74 innings pitched. His batting average against in 2013 was 129. It's that's it. It's the that's the greatest reliever season I'll ever see in my life. I don't blame you. It was not an easy decision to to pick over Koji. I mean, particularly because of the, I mean, the image of. Of him with his arm in the air after winning the World Series is one that is going to like stick in Red Sox lore for an extremely long time. In that gif of him uh, 
or gif or however you want to say it of him like walking up the steps and slapping everybody's hands and then just slapping someone in the face um, <laughs> is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, Ko- Koji, Koji as a human being was also just like the greatest treasure. Um, there was no more likable human being on the Red Sox. You know, we talk about the fact that, you know, right now that the team does have some guys that can be a little bit prickly and personalities on that 2013 team were rock solid. Was he the one that would go out to the bullpen with a softball and a plank of wood too? Yeah, I think he was actually. (laughs) Koji was such a treat. 2013 to 2015 was the best thing ever. Uh, I love Koji. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you there. And he was my... Uh, my relief pitcher number one. So my, I guess my setup man to Kimbrel. I bucked the trend, uh, and although I admit that Kimbrel is better than this player, my relief pitcher number one is Junichi Tazawa, um, who from 2012 to 2014 was super valuable. I mean, he had an unbelievably ERA through a ton of innings. Um, I just love the fact that Tazawa. <clears throat> really wasn't expected to be kind of what he ended up being. You know, he wasn't expected to turn into a a super valuable piece, and he was incredible uh, during that stretch of time. I mean, he had a 1.43 ERA in 2012 and uh, ERA under 3 in 2014. And I mean, he he was just great. Um, And he wasn't maddening to me in the same way that Kimbrell was. With with Kimbrell's dominance, I think the thing that held me back with Kimbrell is – the watching experience for Craig Kimbrell was kind of horrifying in terms of how maddening he was in 2016, was amazing in 2017, and then went back to like being kind of up and down in 2018, even though his stats ended up finishing great. So this was purely a who made me feel most calm in these situations. And Kimbrell, despite his dominance, just didn't make me feel as calm as these two lovely Japanese men. I, yeah, okay, that's understandable. Although, for the 2016 season, Kimbrell was hurt, wasn't he? Because then, I mean, when he's not hurt, he's very good. Although, I mean, 2018, he was healthy, and that was kind of painful sometimes. So I guess I kind of understand that. I don't so, remember what his injury situation was, but you might be you might be on to something. Yeah. But, so I actually, I had Tozawa as my, my RP2 right behind Kimbrell. Tazawa, I'm not gonna lie. I was a bit surprised to see how good Tazawa was compared to all the other relievers here. I mean, I knew that he was pretty consistent and reliable, but to to see him kind of at the top with all these other names, I I was surprised. Yeah, yeah. Tazawa was was just kind of unsung. I mean, he just got it done. He didn't really walk a lot of guys. He was he was good. I love Tazawa. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at his numbers right here. Just solid across the board. Not dominant, but just always solid. Um, for my RP3, I went with Jonathan Papelbon, and my note for him is losing his powers, but still a freak. Yeah, uh, same thing. I went with Papelbon, uh, and pretty much for the same reason. Was still getting strikeouts, still not walking anybody. Still racked up a whole bunch of saves, but it wasn't the uh, 
the river dancing papabon of the aughts. Let me ask you a question with these guys, because we have three sort of eras of dominant closers on this listing, Koji, Kimbrel, and Papelbon. Um, taking them all at their best, so 2013 Koji, 2016 Kimbrel, um, pick your great Papelbon season from the 2000s, um, not the 2010s. Who would you have <clears throat> closing out a game with your life on the line? Koji. <laughs> yes 2013 koji is the lifeline <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely uh with imagine having your life on the line in a like 2018 kimbrel safe like a late in the year 2018 kimbrel safe it would be really horrifying he'd probably get it done but he'd like load the bases <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um RP4, we had the same guy, Andrew Miller. I thought that was pretty cool that out of all those guys, we both picked Andrew Miller. Why did you pick Andrew Miller? I picked Andrew Miller because this is kind of when the like super utility reliever started, and it's when Andrew Miller became Andrew Miller here. Um, he went on to be more Andrew Millery uh, other places, but it started here, and he was – Pretty darn good in his time when he was here. Um, he didn't close, but his role of that super utility, um, multiple innings can come in when the inning's clean, can come in for one out to get you out of a jam, can be the lefty specialist when you need him. Uh, that all kicked off here, and he was the guy. And... Uh, that role didn't really uh, exist pervasively throughout the majors up to that point. And then people point to Andrew Miller with the Indians as kind of uh, the beginning to like the Andrew Miller, Josh Hader, uh, like superhero bullpen, not the closer guy. But, but it did really kind of start with Miller here in the Red Sox. So, uh, tipping my cap to Andrew Miller, kicking off the, a new position in the bullpen here in Boston, giving him the nod on my all-decade team. Perfect. Yeah, I agree. Um, <clears throat> and his trade helped us get Erod, which is great. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do our honorable mentions here before we get to listener questions. Uh, we did one from the infield, outfield, starting pitcher and relief pitcher. Um, I went with Kevin Euclid, Jacoby Ellsbury. John Lackey and Matt Barnes, um, the first two make total sense. Um, John Lackey, I have to defend here. Um, yeah. John Lackey, I basically am all about John Lackey's playoff run with the Red Sox uh, in 2013 and the fact that like he went from the chicken and beer guy to finally kind of – getting it done and i'm trying to pull up his stats here but um yeah here it is uh 26 innings pitched during 2013 um 2.77 era over that playoff run like to me all the crap that he pulled here and all the negativity and whatever and the injury and blah 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 blah, blah john lackey in that playoffs erased everything for me i hated him 
the entire time he was here. Even in, the, even in the postseason? Yeah, it wasn't... wasn't he was so was, good. I mean, he, yeah, it was good. And I'm, ha- I'm obviously happy that we won the World Series. I, just, I wasn't much of a fan of the guy. That's very fair. I mean, his face was very unlikable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I had Matt Barnes. I don't know if I said that yet. You did. Uh, who were who your guys? Uh, so I did say Rafael Devers in the infield. I had Jackie Bradley Jr. in the outfield. Eduardo Rodriguez as my pitcher, and Matt Barnes as my reliever. I mean, those are uh, those are pretty damn good choices. And we didn't have that different of lists to kind of wrap this up. I think there we were uh, a few few differences, slight preferences here and there. <clears throat> um, but yeah, that was fun. That was uh, was definitely definitely pretty good. Any closing thoughts before we get to listener questions? No, this was uh, this was a fun exercise. I look forward to doing this again with you in ten years. <laughs> yeah, let's hope the pod's still going <laughs> by then. Um, all right, so our first question comes from our regular listener and a friend of the pod, Zach, and he says, "What current rostered players have the most to prove this year uh, on the Red Sox twenty-six man right now?" I think um, Benintendi comes to mind. I think that's um, a great one. I mean, he didn't have a terrible year, uh, but I think he's capable of much more, and I think the Red Sox are expecting much more out of him. And really towards the second half of the season, started fading more towards a platoon, which they just they can't afford from him. He needs to be better. And, and, we, went, and we went through the whole thing with Gora saying he needs to be more hitterish. So, I mean, they're definitely expecting more from him, and I think um, from the hitter's perspective i don't i think he has the most to prove i agree with you a thousand percent and i think you nailed the reasons why um i will give a pitcher since you gave a hitter um i think the player with the most to prove this year is eduardo rodriguez um and the reason why i'm saying that is because i think eduardo rodriguez needs to prove that he can do it a second time okay um, because he had his big breakout last year, and now he's about to head into the year where he's going to be pitching in his age 26-27 season. Um, this is He's basically entering his prime. The team really needs him with the question marks going on with Sale, Price, and Eovaldi. Um, and if he can deliver and even improve on what he did last year, I mean, he's going to be looked at very differently around baseball. Yes, I agree with that. All right, our next question. Uh, failure to launch angle asks us I love who that. leads <laughs> off the Red Sox lineup in 2020 and in 2021. Presuming, of course, there is some sort of a trade and or leaving a free agency. I think uh, 2020 is Mookie Betts. 2021 is Michael Chavis. Ooh. I will agree with you on 2020 being bets. 2021, man, I'm going to say Benny Boy. Yeah, that makes way more sense. It's definitely not going to be Chavis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Burn the ships. (laughs) Says, why does Heimblum hate all of us? (laughs) Uh, 
You know, that's a fair question. This offseason has about been about the worst first impression he could make so far. Um, to uh, certainly the like average fan, like you know, the, all the things we get into on this podcast about what he's actually trying to do. Like we're <clears throat> giving him leeway because we understand what he's trying to do, and you guys as listeners are obviously very informed, so you understand too. But the average Red Sox fan just driving around in his car has to be like, "What the hell is this guy doing?" I don't know. Do do you think what he's doing now, or if he rushed into a trade of Mookie Betts and or Price during the winter meetings would have been a worse first impression? For the average fan? Yeah. I think what he's doing now. Honestly. Like... Matt and I were kind of talking about this on Twitter. Matt has a much higher opinion or, well, maybe not a higher opinion, but a different (laughs) opinion of the average fan than I do. I think he might actually, it might actually be a lower opinion, but in like a very differently nuanced way. Um, But I, my impression of the average Red Sox fan is they're like, Mookie doesn't want to be here. Screw him. Get him the hell out of town. Like, that's kind of how I feel people feel. Um, And I think Matt feels like, you know, if Mookie gets traded, people are going to riot. And I actually think that nobody cares enough about Mookie to riot. Like, he just doesn't have a big enough personality around this game. Like, I, I think that Victorino and guys like that made a bigger impact with the fan base in their short period of time, just personality-wise, than Mookie has. He's kind of bland in some ways. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, his point was... Uh, or his initial statement was about uh, the Red Sox front office being too afraid of public perception to trade Mookie Betts, which was actually kind of a great point because uh, if you remember in 2018, they were pissed off about public perception that they hadn't made any moves uh, for the roster. Mm. And uh, was it John Henry was like yelling at the media like, we hired Alex Cora. And they were like, okay. But literally all the players on the field are the same. So how is that going to be different? And then it was two weeks later, they added J.D. Martinez. <laughs> but they were pissed off that people weren't like, we hired Alex Cora. Everything is going to be different now. <laughs> so they definitely care about public perception. Oh, yeah. They totally care about so public perception. So maybe that comes into it. But I see, I'm I'm glad that he's not rushing into making a decision one way or another on either trying to extend him, letting it play out, whatever, trying to trade him. Because I think there was nothing worse that he could do than take this job as GM of the Red Sox and then immediately trade Mookie Betts. I don't think that could have – there was zero – like there was no options uh, of that outcome that worked out in his favor. So – while we hoped that was going to be the case, either they were like, here's $500 million, he's here for the next decade. Or we just traded him to the Dodgers. Because we want resolution. But, I mean, this is basically going to define this dude's career. <laughs> this is a, yeah. a pretty fucking big move that he's got to make. So he's yeah. going to take, take his time with it. <laughs> you don't usually get a single opportunity in your career to be in a position where you have to kind of deal with 
having a player of this magnitude that there's such a big choice that needs to be made one one way or the other. So yeah, I agree with you that like him taking his time and making sure he makes the right move and the move that makes sense for the franchise is the smart thing here for sure. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Dirty Water Rants has our next one. He says, is Brady washed? You think no. Brady's washed? No. He had a bum elbow. They were covering it up. Uh, either because they just didn't want to give it away or because of TB12 and he can't get hurt because he's pliable. He had a bum elbow, so he was inaccurate with the throws, coupled with not having anybody to throw to, including Edelman with a bum shoulder, bum rib, and a bum knee. They're going to draft a tight end or uh, acquire uh, Eric Ebron, and they're going to get another wide receiver for him, and they're going to be okay. Although, I don't know what the hell they're going to do with defense because everybody's leaving on defense. That's going to be – I don't know what the fuck's going to happen there. Uh, I am so tired of Bill Belichick. I put everything on Bill Belichick here. He's been a crappy GM lately. He doesn't surround Brady with talent. If you look at talent that Drew Brees has versus Brady, it's – it's laughable. Um, if Brady wants to just get up and get the hell out of here because Belichick's such a dick, um, I'm fine with that for him. I mean, it would make me sad, but Belichick is the one that if I had to choose every time out of 100, it would be choose Brady over Belichick. And I don't think Belichick is nearly the coach. If we're looking for the reason for the Patriots' success, it is – at least 80% Belichick for me. I mean, Brady for me over Belichick. I refuse to uh, choose between my parents. <laughs> That's fair. That is very fair. Uh, we'll get away from football here. <laughs> um, Andrew Amir has an, our next question. He says, I'm worried Bloom is going to get stuck in the middle of not trading anyone <clears throat> to lower payroll, but not doing anything to compete with the Yankees, regardless of what you believe the Sox uh, should do. Isn't it better to pick the direction and go full throttle? I think we kind of just hit on that a little bit, that he really can't go full throttle um, one way or the other until he resolves the bet situation um, in some way or decides what the direction is going to be, whether that means he's keeping them for 2020 or uh, whether it means he's going to trade them. I mean, it's he's in a really tough position to to go one way or the next, and I do expect him to choose a direction at some point, but I just think it can't be rushed. Yeah, in general, I would say it is best to just pick a direction and go for it, but as we outlined before, he's he's basically walking into a career-defining decision in his first job as a GM, and he's not going to rush it, and, and nor should he. So I... Once he takes the time and figures out which direction it should be, I imagine he will, but that he's just not going to rush that decision. Yeah, and and if they do decide to like <clears throat> trade Price and uh and and bets to the Dodgers, like this is they're clearly taking a step back for this year to oh yeah reset sure. and reload. So there you'll know the direction of the team pretty soon. Well, maybe. Uh, Gordon Constock has our last question, and I thought this was a pretty good one, but one that you I did. Uh, I well, I thought it was it was 
It was an interesting question that I knew my answer to immediately. Um, he says, would you rather cheer for a team that was composed of 50 players throughout the year contributing between 0.3 to 2 war that won the World Series or a six, or a, six, a team with 6 to 7 players contributing between 3 and 8 war that lost in the ALCS? It's World Series every time, right? Yeah, yeah. Give me the World yeah. Series, of course. Yeah, give me the band, Why do I want to be like, yeah, we lost. <laughs> yeah. Give me the series. Yeah, no. I mean, as, as fun as stars are, uh, I... I am very guilty of falling in love with role players, and I would happily do so for another banner. It basically seemed like the 50 players with 0.3 to 2 wars, essentially the 2013 team. I mean, it had <laughs> it had its stars, but it was... Yeah. It, I mean, they finished last, won a World Series, and then finished last with basically the same guys all three years. They really caught lightning in a bottle. It was... Something else. We'll never see anything like 2013 again, in all likelihood. Well, that's our show today. Uh, it was a little bit of a long one. We do hope you enjoyed it with the all-decade team. Uh, we won't do it again for another 10 years, so there you go. Um, and we will be with you uh, every couple weeks, so we'll be off next week. We'll be with you the week after and as news breaks. Um, so, you know, if a, if a blockbuster happens, we'll be with you a lot quicker uh, than we would have been otherwise. But thank you for joining us. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Keaton at, at the Spoken Keats. You can follow me at, at Dev Jake, and you can follow the Over the Monster account at, at Over the Monster. Thanks again, and we'll be with you next time.